The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Vinnie Politan, and welcome to the Court TV Podcast. By all accounts, Florida psychiatrist Dr. Paul Jarrett was a good man, the type of man who would forgive another's transgressions. Unfortunately, that's exactly what led to people breaking into his Coral Gables, Florida home late at night and shooting the doctor and his son to death. It was a crime that could have easily been written off as a random act of violence, if not for a letter found in the home, a letter that clearly laid out a motive for murder. This week's Court TV podcast is an episode of our true crime original series, Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall. The episode is titled Deadly Letter and features interviews with former Miami-Dade police detective Mitch Jacobs, defense attorney Lorna Owens, People Magazine's Steve Helling, and the daughter and sister of the victims, Aletta Jarrett. Have a listen. Here's Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall, Deadly Letter. This is the Court TV Podcast. It never even moved. He just, it was like an execution style. It certainly looked like a robbery, but it looked like the person who did it was looking for something very specific. He continued to insist that it was very important to get this letter. You can't believe something like this has happened. Sometimes these cases, you could put the best police detectives in the world, and sometimes it's just a little bit of luck. Just all the right pieces fell into place and really broke this case wide open. On July 16th, 2003, an 82-year-old doctor and his 47-year-old son were found shot to death in their beds. Detectives had no leads, and the double homicide remained unsolved for nearly six months until police got a lucky break and the dominoes began to fall. Coral Gables is just outside of Miami, and it's a very upscale, very classy area with million-dollar homes and fancy cars and professionals, doctors, lawyers, business owners. It's the nicest part of South Florida, and it's the part that everybody wants to live in. Paul Jarrett was a really, really well-known psychiatrist in town. He had won a lot of awards for his work. He was someone that was really well-respected in the community, not just in the community in Coral Gables. The Jarrett's were a really good family. Let's just start with he was a wonderful father, a wonderful husband. He was a very smart uh, medical doctor. He started the Department of Psychiatry here at Mercy Hospital. He had a joke for every occasion. He was extremely athletic, was a marathon runner, and he was called the running doc in Miami. My brother, Greg, was a huge fisherman. We used to call him Old Man in the Sea. He also was an excellent nurse. I used to go up to the hospital, and when I go up there, everybody would tell me what a great guy he was. Back then, there wasn't really a lot of male nurses. And we became very, very close, because over the years, I lost uh, two other brothers. 
Greg was living with his dad, staying there, had a girlfriend, was kind of looking to his own future. So, you know, these were people who really did seem to have it all together, especially at this time of their lives. Greg didn't turn up at the hospital for his shift. And he was the morning shift, and that's not like him. He was dating one of the nurses there. And they kept calling, and nobody would answer. So at about 2 o'clock, she says, I'm going to go to the house to see what has happened. And another nurse says, I'll go with you. And so they got there. The door was open. They didn't go in. They called the police. And when the police went in, they found the two persons deceased. Paul and Greg were both found dead. They'd both been shot, and the house had been ransacked. But when we say it was ransacked, nothing was really stolen. It wasn't as though all their jewelry was gone or all the electronics were gone. Those things were still there. It certainly looked like a robbery, but it looked like the person who did it was looking for something very specific. When you see that, they where the blood splatter was above the head, you get the feeling they never even moved. He just, it was like an execution style. There really wasn't a whole lot of evidence. They didn't find, you know, there wasn't like some struggle where they found a lot of, you know, maybe the killer got cut and had blood in his hands, or it wasn't like they found DNA under, the, under you know, any of the victim's fingernails. There was no real evidence that could place anyone um, who might have been behind the attack at the scene. One of the, the key things that the, the cops had right away was Dr. Jared's car was gone another thing that was missing from the crime scene was a gun that belonged to Greg Jarrett. And nobody knew where that was. Murders don't happen in Coral Gables very often, let alone a double murder, two family members shot to death inside their own house. It was sort of like your worst nightmare. When I walked in the house, my husband was looking at me in a way that you don't want ever anybody to have that look. And I went, what happened? What happened? He, he was almost speechless, just looking at me. A detective from Miami-Dade Police Department called and said my father and brother had been murdered. And it's something that a husband should never have to do. One thing I insisted upon by time I got there, the bodies had been removed, but it was a crime scene. I'm a nurse. I've seen blood before. I've seen people die. I said, I can handle this. But the victim advocates said they advise you not to go in there and not to do it. And I said, guess what? I'm going in with or without you. And I went in, and I did see it. And um, I wish I hadn't. At the moment, cops didn't have a whole lot because they were thinking, well, maybe one of his patients had decided that they'd snapped, and they were, but then they went through all their patients, and there was nobody who, who would have done it. They didn't seem to have enemies. This wasn't a family that had a lot of people that didn't like them. What they had were two men who were dead of gunshot wounds and not a whole lot more. I didn't believe it. My father was a practical joker. I thought, what kind of a joke? This is the worst practical joke he's ever played. And that you just, you can't believe something like this has happened. And when I got down to Miami the very next day, I was 
actually interviewed like I was a suspect because my all my family is now dead. Maybe I had done something to, you know, get an inheritance. The media was all over this case. It was a complete whodunit. We were reaching out to all of informants. Homicide detectives were doing all of their interviews, investigating it as thorough as possible. And for the community of Coral Gables, it was a priority for this case to be solved. With the community of Coral Gables on edge, detectives frantically chased down the few leads they had. They were looking for Dr. Jarrett's car, Greg Jarrett's missing handgun, and talking to people they knew. Not knowing why they were killed was horrible. I got to be close to the detectives, and once I was ruled out, um, I would talk to them. They were searching all the phone records. And did I know any of these names and anything? And I was just constantly, what can I do to help? What can I do to help solve this? When they're looking for the suspects and they're starting off cold, and when I say cold, they don't find any forensics in the home, and the car is taken somewhere nearby to a nearby lot and abandoned, but they said it was wiped down. So they don't really, that means they don't find any forensic evidence in the vehicle either. They're gonna do two things. They're gonna, one, start looking at the last people who would have contact with the family, uh, the father and son, and who are the people closest to them. So in, in looking there, that's where they're gonna start finding different possible clues. Maria Catabe worked uh, for Dr. Paul Jarrett, and uh, Maria Catabe at some point um, stole some checks from her boss. My dad had a good relationship with Maria, and when we used to walk, see the sunrise at Mathis and Hammock, all he would talk about is poor Maria stories. She had a lot of problems with marriages and her children and automobile accidents, that kind of thing. The police found out that she had been embezzling money from Dr. Jarrett once they started talking to her. Maria writes a check based on how much money she believes that she's owed for work that she's done, and she f throws in a few extra thousand dollars in there because she needs it, and she figures he can uh, absorb the loss of the money. He discovers it, though, and so she apologizes. The fact that she's still working there, he hadn't fired her, he seems to have forgiven her. Maria wrote an apology letter uh, for embezzling, and we did not know that um, until months later. We were cleaning out my dad's clothes and we found it folded up inside the vest pocket of a coat. The letter in Dr. Jarrett's coat pocket confirms what the police had heard from Maria herself, that she had been stealing money, that she had penned this, this key piece of evidence, this letter to Dr. Jarrett apologizing and asking for a second chance. I think Maria Catabe was a person of interest and her story seemed to add up to the detectives, and it sort of ended there. Survivor's guilt probably is the worst to deal with, because it's not only that um, my father and brother were murdered, they were my last two to die. All my family has died, my brothers and my mother, and the, the last two to murder. Murder is like no other, though. I've been through a lot of tragic deaths, but let me tell you, I think it's having to deal with the criminal justice system all those years, too, that just, it's just, it's agonizing. This case went on for a long, long time. They couldn't figure who would want to kill the doctor, who would want to uh, kill uh, Greg, and so it went unsolved. 
The homicide investigation was stale. It was a complete whodunit. Miami-Dade homicide detectives were working all the leads they could from that aspect, but at that time, no arrests were made. When you hit a wall as a homicide detective, you're just still uh, feelers in the street. They reach out to units like ours, uh, contact your informants, put the word out that we're looking for uh, people that possibly are bragging about the murder they committed, which occurs frequently. And in the, from that aspect, that's how we are working it. Most people think when you have family members murdered, they're at the wrong place at the wrong time. They were part of the mafia. They were drug dealers in Miami. All these things, that you, they, they really almost don't want to talk to you about it anymore. Like you're part of this group that is tainted almost, like you have a scarlet letter on you. It's only a few close friends and people that have stuck along with it all along. And I know it's very hard. It goes unsolved for about six months. And finally, they have a breakthrough in the case. Sometimes these cases, you could put the best police detectives in the world, and sometimes it's just a little bit of luck. We ran the first firearm within one minute of the arrest, and that uh, firearm came back stolen from Dr. Jared's house. Now it's just a matter of putting the you know, pieces to the puzzle together. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice. After exhausting every possible lead, the police's case of who killed Dr. Jarrett and his son Greg went cold until one day, nearly six months after the murder, when detectives got a break. Call it fate, a stroke of luck, or kismet. This mystery was about to be solved. I was a detective with Miami-Dade Police Department. Stop Task Force was a, we are a, a violent crime unit. We do sting operations. We received information from a confidential source that uh, Jose Barco was interested in committing a uh, robbery of an armored truck that was gonna be delivering money to uh, Mount Sinai Credit Union over on Miami Beach. So we pulled a Bloomers Fargo truck up to the credit union Jose Barco got out of the informant's car, was approaching the truck to rob the courier when we made our presence known and arrested Mr. Barco. When we made the arrest, one of the detectives, Detective McCollman, who was on the scene with us at the time of arrest, he was also on the scene of the Dr. Jared murder. And when we recovered both firearms that Mr. Barco had in his possession, we ran the first firearm within one minute of the arrest, and that uh, firearm came back stolen from Dr. Jared's house. Detective McCollman says, Mitch, you're not gonna believe this, but we believe the Jareds were killed with a 22." And sure enough, we recovered the 22 with a silencer that Jose Barco had uh, on his person as well. The mere callousness of Jose Barco to keep the firearm that was stolen from Dr. Jared, to have the murder weapon in his possession at the time of arrest, we were shocked when, uh, when we discovered it. Now it's just a matter of putting the you know, pieces to the puzzle together 
and we went, we moved forward from there. I got a phone call from Detective Parr the night before saying, we're breaking the case, I wanna tell you tonight, because it's gonna be all over the news tomorrow. I want you to be the first to know that we broke the case and you just didn't see it on the TV. Jose Barker was interviewed by some homicide detectives about the crime. He wouldn't confess to the crime uh, of murder. He just denied it and denied it. Eventually, we confronted him with some of the audio recordings that we made during our proactive investigation. He admitted to our informant that he's killed in the past. And in this particular case, he was in a kill the guard. When Jose Barco was confronted with audio recordings, he asked if he can go to the bathroom. I took him to the bathroom. We were in the bathroom. He turned to me and says, hey, you're pretty good. I, you got me. I did it. So now they have the one who committed the murders. But they're also going to dig deeper into, well, what made you choose this home, and why did you go in there, and what, what was the story? Eventually, it came out that he had been, you know, basically, uh, hired to go help a guy named J.C. Fernandez and to break into this house. And of course, J.C. Fernandez turns out to be Maria Cadabay's boyfriend. Arresting Maria was interesting. Homicide detectives asked us to approach her at a gas station, which we did. And she was very interested in speaking with a Miami-Dade homicide detective as to her involvement in the crime. Did you write a letter. What was the content in general of that letter? An admission to um, a wrongdoing regarding money. That you stole the money. Or I'm showing a, a copy of the letter. Is that the letter? That is the letter. Juan Carlos Fernandez wasn't happy with the fact that Maria Cadabay wrote a letter admitting to stealing the money. He said that, that I should have never done that. That I should have just, if I wanted to just see, discuss it with Dr. Jared in person is one thing, but to actually put something in writing is, a, is another. And that I should retrieve that letter, that that should come back and, and it's JC who brings forth the alarm. Oh my gosh, that could be used against you. I'm going to go get it for you one way or another. We learned through the investigation that Maria Cadabay, uh, his boyfriend, Juan Carlos Fernandez, contacted his uncle, Ruben Fernandez. His grandnephew, Juan Carlos or JC Fernandez, comes to him and says, hey, I need to burglarize somewhere. I need to go into a home. Will you come with me? And he recommends Mr. Barco. Did Mr. Fernandez suggest that you drive him over to the Jared house so he could obtain the letter? Yes. What was your response? No. Because? Because I didn't want to be involved in trying to retrieve that letter in that matter. And then he said, fine, we'll go with someone else because he continued to insist that it was very important to get this letter. Maria confesses, not to the murder, but confesses to the idea that Juan Carlos told her that we need to get the letter back. And she was 
shifting blame, so to speak. Wasn't taking full responsibility. Her boyfriend was the one who went and hired a hitman through his uncle to go into the house and kill them both while they're sleeping in the bed. Just because she wasn't there and she didn't pull the trigger, according to Florida law, that's felony murder. She was the cog in the wheel of the chariot of death and destruction. If it wasn't for her, they would have woke up the next morning and said good morning to each other. The trial of Maria Cadabe began nearly six years after the murder of the doctor and his son. Jose Barco had already been convicted of the double murder and was serving a life sentence. Ruben Fernandez pleaded guilty for his part and would be testifying for the state. And although she was not present when the crime was committed, Maria Cadabe was facing charges of burglary and murder. I went to virtually every single hearing, trial, living 500 miles away. I did 1,000-mile round trips to Miami. There weren't very many people left that would come and attend the trials. Somebody needed to be in that courtroom to represent my father and my brother, and it ended up being me. Ms. Corona, on behalf of the state, you may proceed with opening statement. We're here today because Dr. Paul Jarrett and his son, Greg Jarrett, are dead. And Maria Cadaby is the reason for that. And you're going to hear that Maria spoke to the police extensively. She gave two separate statements. She spoke to both Detective Parr and Detective Strohs. She was there for hours. And during this statement, she finally admits to having written the letter. She's confronted with the letter. She admits to having stolen some checks from the doctor. And she admits that she herself agreed with JC and conspired with JC to burglarize the doctor's house in order to retrieve that letter. That's Maria's story. If you believe Maria's story, under the felony murder rule that the judge explained to you and Mr. Waxman explained to you during jury, during jury selection, you are gonna have to find Maria guilty of murder because these people died as a result of a burglary, the felony that she helped to arrange. The state came at the trial saying, we can connect these lines. She worked for him. She embezzled money from him. She said she was sorry. And then, for whatever reason, decided that she wanted to cover her tracks. It was very linear, the way that the state did it, because they had a very linear case. You could very easily, in just a few sentences, connect all the dots to something that made a lot of sense. I'm here to explain to you or to tell you what the evidence will in fact show. The evidence will show that once the police decided that Maria Cadabe had to have something to do with the death of Dr. Jarrett and, and Greg Jarrett, they made it fit. Maria Cadabe, if you want to believe, is a thief. She's tempted to steal $9,317 from her employer. She was caught, she wrote a letter of apology. She said, I am so sorry for what I did to you. You've been so good to me. I shouldn't have done it. I should have followed the inner voice that told me all along that it was wrong. 
The evidence will show that at best she's a thief, but never a cold-blooded killer. It's a long way from that. Maria Cadabay had nothing to do with Dr. Jarrett's death or Greg Jarrett's death. And the states will never be able to prove that. That being so, you will have to find that Maria is not guilty of all the things that they say about her. It was very clear to me, without a shadow of a doubt, that she did not set up for her boss or his son to be murdered. No doubt about that. There was no intent for this to happen, to turn this bad. Mr. Fernandez, if you'll come forward, please, and if our interpreter can come forward, please. Ruben Fernandez and Mr. Barco have been political prisoners together in a prison in, in Cuba. And as he testifies on the stand, he connected JC and Jose Barco. What did you do after JC asked you to do or commit this burglary with him? He asked me if I had anybody that could do it. Did you find somebody that you thought would do it with him? Yes. Who's that? Quién? Barco. Barco. Jose Barco. And who is Jose Barco? Era un hombre vaya que había participado en la guerra en Argelia. Was a man who had participated in the war in Argelia, in Algiers. Era un hombre vaya de acción. He was a man of action. Jose Barco, to me, is a ruthless killer. He didn't care, and he was just a murderer. You take a look at those and tell me if you recognize those. Yes, I do. Is that a fair and accurate representation of what Dr. Jarrett and his son Greg Jarrett looked like when you got to the scene on July 17, 2003? Yes. And what could you determine about that gunshot wound? Could you determine the distance that the gun was fired from the head? At the scene, before the body was cleaned, I could see that there was black soot and residue around the wound edges, as well as soot in the wound edges and around the wound itself. So that meant the gun was almost in contact with the head when it was fired. I got out of the, um, the courtroom when the medical examiner came on and they showed all the pictures. And I said, I don't want that to be my last image of actually seeing the bodies in the bed. I didn't want that. So I'm glad I did that. Did there come a time during your interviews of her on, I believe, the 6th and the 7th, where she mentioned a suggestion that Juan Carlos Fernandez had that might get her out of her financial difficulties? Yes. And what was that? Um, according to the defendant, uh, Juan Carlos suggested that he retrieve the apology letter for her, and that might alleviate any, alleviate any um, uh, legal problems. And where was he supposed to look for the apology letter? Either in the deceased victim, Paul Jarrett's car, or his home. And did Maria Cadaby tell you whether or not she agreed with that plan? Yes. She said that uh, she agreed that uh, the letter should be retrieved and the house or car be burglarized. When he was discussing his plans with you and you were exchanging information with him, did you agree with the plans that he was formulating? Yes. Were the majority of those conversations concerning the attempt to obtain a letter that you had written? Yes. 
I believe violence was going to occur, and she knew violence was going to occur, because whenever you go inside somebody's house when they're there, the likelihood of violence, you're committing a home invasion robbery, is very great. She was involved in the planning of the burglary, planning uh, of the entry of the home, and someone died as a result. Under the law, she's as guilty as the trigger man. The defense's strategy was to get the jury to feel sorry for her. The only thing I know is that when Carlos came and told me what happened inside the house, that's all I know. I don't know anything else. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. On the third day of testimony, the state rested its case. Where the defense would start was anyone's guess. To the surprise of many in the courtroom, the first witness they called was Maria Cadabay. All right, uh, Ms. Owens, the state having rested on behalf of Ms. Cadabay. I called Maria Cadabay to the stand. Ms. Cadabay, if you'll come forward, raise your right hand, stand in front of uh, Linda. She will administer the oath. Do you swear firm that the evidence you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Yes, I do. At some point in the trial, the defense has to decide whether or not to put her on the stand. Generally, we don't like to put our clients on the stand they automatically become the number one witness. And when I say number one witness, I mean every sound that they utter becomes more important than whatever anyone else said. And that one witness could make or break the case. And it may not be fair, but this is how the human mind works and this is how a trial works. I put Maria Academy on the stand, or I had to. This is a murder, this is a going away for life. I, I had to pull out all the stops. Ms. Cadabay, was your father abusive to you? Yes. How so? My father's form of punishments were very harsh, and they were corporal punishment. And was there any domestic violence with your first boyfriend? Yes, ma'am. Did something happen to you around age 18 that has stayed with you throughout your life? Yes. What is that? Tell the members of the jury what that is. I was, I was brutally raped by a person whom I believed was a police officer. The defense's strategy was to get the jury to feel sorry for her, that she had a history of abuse from her father, a history of abuse from um, uh, boyfriends and husbands. They couldn't come up with a case, but they did present it to the jury that she said that she was uh, abused and sexually assaulted by a man in uniform, an officer. Once again, poor Maria's stories. Oh, poor Maria. What took place at Dr. Night. Jarrett's house? Juan Carlos told me that when he was inside the house, that that Barco had gone in before him, and when he was creeping around, that Barco told him there was no need to creep around because he had already that he had already shot the doctor. 
I'm sorry. Take your time. The only thing I know is that when Carlos came and told me what happened inside the house, that's all I know. I don't know anything else. Maria likes to talk, okay? She, she spoke a ton when she was first interviewed by the detective. She, you know, kind of gave this weepy, overdramatic um, statement to the homicide detectives. And she did the same thing when she got on the stand with, with the, uh, you know, at the trial. Uh, so she kind of came across as very overdramatic and very, you know, melodramatic. Um, and I remember it was a lot of moments where it was kind of like, you didn't really think she was all that emotional. It kind of felt forced. Did you plan, conspire, encourage uh, Juan Carlos to break into the house of Dr. Jarrett? Oh. No, ma'am. Okay. Did he t you tell him to go to retrieve the letter of apology that you had written to Dr. Jarrett? No, ma'am. And when we saw your, your two videotapes and all the things you said on the videotapes, are you here saying that those statements are not true? Those statements are not true, ma'am. Why did you say those statements? I had detectives that were not giving me a choice in the matter. I was scared. They were telling me that terrible things were gonna happen to my children if I didn't help them, if I didn't help them come up with this story that would fit their theory so that they could have a tight case. Lots of innocent people confess. If you pressure, whether Maria did it or not, if you pressure you or, or anybody enough in an interrogating room with skilled people like that, a lot of things can go wrong. So during those many, many hours of interrogation, she confessed to um, sending there to them to go retrieve it. And when that video and stenographically recorded sworn, that, by the way, that was a sworn statement, wasn't it? Yes. So you were under oath to tell the truth. Correct. Just like you hear today, under oath to tell the truth. Yes? Y yes. And you're telling the truth today, aren't you? Yes, I am, sir. And did you tell the truth in that sworn statement? I told them what they wanted to hear. So that means it was not the truth? That's what they wanted to hear, sir. Was it the truth in the sworn statement, ma'am? No, sir. She was manipulative. I think that she felt that she could hold her own um, with the prosecutor. She sparred with him. It was. It was upsetting to see that, that she was trying to get the best of him. You told us about some of the horrible things that happened to you when you were 18 years old, the domestic violence with husbands, boyfriends, father, you recall that? Yes, sir. Are you the victim in this case? Stay in the form of the question. Is that why you tried to steal at least $3,000 from Dr. Jarrett? Question. Sustain this to the form. Is that justification for trying to steal money from Dr. Jarrett? I have never tried to justify my actions, sir. She apparently had a history of being able to manipulate people, and she, I guess she thought she could do it this time, too. The short trial concluded after five days of testimony, but before the jury would begin their deliberations, the state and defense had one more chance to persuade these 12 men and women who were about to decide Ms. Cadabay's fate. You had the video. 
It's a relatively new phenomenon for criminal trials. You saw the defendant giving her statement. You saw it. You don't have to take anyone's word for it. You don't even have to take a court reporter's word when someone comes in and says, here's this one statement that she gave to the court reporter. You don't have to take anyone's word. You just have to look at the video. Look at the video and tell yourself, ask yourself, was she coerced? Was she yelled at? Was she threatened? Or was this a free and voluntary statement? And you know, after watching her testify for a day and a half, she is anything but submissive and introverted. She has something to say, she says it. She wants a lawyer, she would have said it. She don't want to talk, she would have said it. Give me my phone, I want to call my lawyer. She would have said it. You saw she said whatever she wanted to say for four or five hours the last two days. She is not submissive, she is not introverted. She's not easily intimidated. I ask you to keep this in mind, and when you go into the jury room, definition of burglary, intention to steal something, principles, you help somebody commit a crime, you're responsible, and if someone passes away during a burglary, it's first-degree felony murder. Those three principles will guide you to the correct verdict. Thank you. In Florida, like most states in the United States, you don't actually have to be the person that is pulling the trigger. You don't actually have to be the one that's going into the house. It's called the um, felony murder principle, right? The principle theory. So I'll never forget the, the state's, one of the state's argument was, you know, Maria is just as guilty as as the guy that was standing there pulling the trigger, right? She, it was just as if she was standing there next to the gunman um, because she she orchestrated the whole thing. She masterminded the whole thing. She orchestrated the burglary that led to someone's murder. So in Florida, if you participate in certain felonies, especially violent felonies, but armed burglary is one of them, um, that leads to someone's death, you too can be you know, found guilty of first degree murder. This case really is about a breach of trust. It's about shame, and it's about an attempt at redemption. It is not about murder. It is not about premeditated murder. Maria Cadabe is not guilty <laughs> of trying to kill her boss by any, any means necessary. That's not what happened here. She's not guilty of armed burglary. She's not guilty of second degree murder third-degree murder, manslaughter. She's guilty of something. She tried to steal from her boss. And that, she took the stand in her own defense when she didn't have to, but she did it. Because she wanted to look you in the eyes and she wanted to tell you her story. Maria Cadabe is depending on you. My job is done. You gotta take not guilty. By the time it was over, I mean, I didn't know what was gonna happen. You never know, and I'm, I'm like, I did the best I could. But in terms of feeling tone, I felt they heard me. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I understand you have reached a verdict, is that correct? Madam Clerk, if you'll please publish a verdict. We, the jury, find as follows. As to count one of the indictment, the defendant is not guilty. As to count two, we, the jury, finds of the indictment, the defendant is not guilty. 
As to count three of the indictment, the defendant is guilty of burglary. A firearm was used in the commission of the burglary. The structure is a dwelling. An assault or battery was committed. The verdict in Maria's case was sort of a classic compromise verdict, right? Where I think probably to get to that point where they wanted to convict her, and there was probably some people who were, were you know, hesitating. So they just said, all right, let's split it down the middle. Let's, let's acquit her of the murders and convict on the armed burglary, right? She, she wasn't there, but she's the one who orchestrated it. She's the one who put the whole plan in motion. We were quite upset with the verdict because we thought it should have been some form of murder. And they had, they had options. In fact, everybody that commented on the newspaper article that David Avaya wrote was all like, they thought she should have gotten first degree murder, um, the death penalty, all of that kind of stuff. And that I think juries have a really hard time with felony murder. They think you really have to have been there at the place and pulled the trigger. It's a sad case. It, it, the, you don't have total joy because two persons are in fact dead. But as it related to my client, I think the juries understood the issues. It was a win with the two homicide gone, you know? So, uh, I, and honestly, I felt that we had made it home safely. I felt that first-time offender, probation was also in the card. She got 30 years for, for the burglary, and so, you know, at her age, 30 years, you know, practically a life sentence. So the judge really wanted to give the most that he could give because her actions did lead to their death. Whether or not she knew about it, whether or not she was the trigger person, if it hadn't been for Maria Catabay and what she'd done, both Paul and Greg Jarrett would still have been alive. Judge Blake's reasoning was, and I disagree then and I disagree now, um, that Dr. she had already gotten mercy, redemption. Dr. Jarrett had forgiven her. And as a result, she already got saved. She already got her redemption. She already got mercy. And now, and, and so he gave her, he gave her th 30 years. When she got 30 years for burglary dwelling with a firearm, we felt really fortunate on that because you know what the sentencing standard is? Zero to life. It could be all the way down to zero. Today, in our story, maybe one page has been turned or perhaps a chapter. But in the life of my father and my brother, their book of life was slammed shut. I remember Alita had gone through so much and this case lasted for so long. I just remember Maria's sort of callousness and sort of, she had this like weird, goofy sort of air about her where she was just sort of oblivious to the suffering that she had caused. My healing journey path has been every picture in my house of them sitting there. It's, it's motivation to do the right thing. I do a lot of victim advocacy work with Mothers Demand Action. I testify, I attend hearings. I'm really into preventing gun violence. I'm really hoping that my father and my brother, when they look at my advocacy work, I really hope, hope they'd be proud of me. I know my brother would probably say, oh, just get over it and get on with your life. <laughs> I know he would say that. I don't hate Maria. I don't have that in my heart. 
What she did, she did for her own reasons, and there's nothing that's gonna ever bring them back. And I basically, to tell you the truth, I feel sorry for her. I think she did a very horrible thing, and she did a horrible act, and she needs to pay for it. In 2016, nearly 13 years after the murder, Juan Carlos Fernandez pleaded guilty to killing Dr. Paul Jarrett and his son, Greg Jarrett. Today, inmate number 453972, Maria Catabate, is serving her sentence at the Gadsden Correctional Facility in Quincy, Florida. I'm Tamron Hall. Thank you for watching Someone They Knew. If you're enjoying these audio editions of Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall, then you'll want to tune into Court TV weeknights at 7 p.m. Eastern to see episodes of our ongoing series. You can also see premiere episodes of the show every Sunday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. And as always, you can see me every weeknight from 8 to 10 on my show Closing Arguments, where we break down all the biggest legal stories of the day. I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks so much for downloading. And please don't forget, to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to courttv.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.